you'll uh, reach for your Bibles and stand in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. As Pastor Bruce continues our series, Scandalous, we're going to be looking at the irony of the cross this morning. Our passage will be Matthew 27. We'll be reading verses 27 through 54. If you uh, need a Bible, there are a few Bibles in front of you. You can turn to page 571 where you'll find the text. Once again, follow along as I read Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 54, which sets the, the stage for our text this morning for our sermon. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, and dividing his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, they divided my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking him, the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now and he will save him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for this text. As in it we find the sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice by your Son Jesus for our sins. We ask that we would have uh, just open hearts and minds to learn and to, to, uh, to apply the message that you're going to bring to us today to our hearts and our lives. And uh, help us to, to grow in our relationship with you and, uh, and live for you on a daily basis. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue in our series on the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, we want to focus on the irony of the cross. Most of us know what irony is. In fact, a lot of people actually enjoy irony in life as life is riddled with irony. 
Irony usually conveys the difference between how things seem to be and how things really are. For example, here, here are some ironies. What's ironic about McDonald's? Well, the McDonald's employee health page, which is now shut down, once warned against eating too many McDonald's burgers and fries. That's ironic. What's ironic about a Charlie Brown Christmas TV show? Well, every year ABC cuts down. They edit more and more of the Charlie Brown Christmas, a movie about the over-commercialization of the holidays to make room for more commercials. That's irony. What's ironic about Charlie Chaplin? Well, he once entered a, quote, Charlie Chaplin walk contest and came in 20th place. What's ironic about duct tape? Well, according to researchers, duct tape should never be used for sealing ducks. You got it. See, that's irony. You're, you're catching on. What's ironic about Alexander Graham Bell? Well, Alexander Graham Bell invented a telephone but refused to keep one in his study because he feared it would distract him from his work. Ironic. And then, what's ironic about a man who survived going over Niagara Falls? The first man to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel died after slipping on an orange peel. Irony. Well, ironies can amuse us. Ironies can even surprise us. But ironies can also teach us. Irony has the potential, especially in a narrative, in a story, for bringing a situation into sharp focus. And very often, it is the irony in the story that enables the readers to see what is really going on in the story. And so irony, therefore... It actually has the capacity to clarify an event, to express what is important about it. And nowhere is irony more evident than the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, notice this in your notes. I, if you want to follow along, you can pull out that insert in your bulletin, or you can just follow on the, the screen behind me here. But notice the irony of the cross. It's in his weakness on the cross Jesus Christ revealed his greatness. And then we see this especially in the theme verse of our series here called Scandalous, in which Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. This is the irony of the cross. It's in his weakness on the cross that Jesus Christ actually revealed his greatness to us. Here in Matthew 27, Matthew unfolds for us what takes place as Jesus is crucified. But Matthew, what's interesting, he does so by displaying some ironies that show us what is really going on in this passage of Scripture. What is really going on is Jesus is being crucified. D.A. Carson, who is, uh, he was a former pastor, he's now still a, a Bible professor, he's a, a speaker in lectures uh, all over the place, across the world. He first preached about these ironies several, several years ago and then followed it up by uh, writing about them in a book on the cross. And what I want to do this morning is I want to share with you four of these ironies of the cross and then conclude by participating in communion or the Lord's Supper. And so 
by the time we get to Matthew 27, Jesus now has been in the public eye for about three years ministering with his disciples. However, the religious and political leaders of the day, they have had enough of Jesus. They resent his popularity. They fear his potential political power, and they are suspicious of his motives. And so in their minds, Jesus had to be taken out some way or another. They provide a kangaroo court. They find Jesus guilty of treason. And they manage to secure the sanction of the Roman governor to have Jesus executed by crucifixion. And so as we come now to this passage of scripture that Zach read for us in Matthew 27, we find the soldiers preparing Jesus for immediate crucifixion. And what we also find is that the cross now is riddled with irony. And I want us to look at them. I want us to unpack these ironies because it's in the irony that we find the meaning of what Jesus and what God wants us to focus on. Notice the first irony. Number one, the one who is mocked as king is the king. Immediately after Jesus was sentenced to be crucified, Jesus was flogged or scourged by the soldiers. This was standard procedure. It was customary to flog prisoners before taking them out to be crucified. But what happened next, or what they did next to Jesus, is not standard procedure. Notice again what Matthew writes here in verse 27 through 31. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor, that is Pilate, took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And then they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hell, king of the Jews. And then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. And so what we see here is Matthew is setting up the context for us. The soldiers gather around Jesus. They strip him of his clothes. They drape some sort of scarlet robe on him, pretending that he is a royal king. Then they wind together a crown of thorns, and they crunch it down on his head. They put a staff into his hand, and they pretend it's a king's scepter. They bow before Jesus. Imagine that, Roman soldiers bowing the knee before Jesus Christ. But they do so in mock reverence, crying out, Hell, King of the Jews! Hell, King of the Jews! And then they continue the mockery by spitting in his face, hitting him again and again with the mock scepter. Once the soldiers are finished mocking him, they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him away to be crucified. But Matthew knows, and we know, and God especially knows, that Jesus is truly the king of kings. He is the king of the Jews. Matthew reminds us of this reality all throughout his gospel. In fact, that's what his gospel is about is establishing Jesus as the king of the Jews and ultimately the king of all kings. You go to chapter 2. 
there and the wise men at the birth of Christ. They asked the question, where is the one who has been born what? King of the Jews. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, he constantly talks about the kingdom. And in some of the stories that Jesus tells, he even makes himself out to be the king of that kingdom. The same theme is raised right here now. In Matthew 26, in the trial before Pilate, when, when Pilate asked Jesus in Matthew 26, verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, yes, it is, as you say. Even the charge that is brought against Jesus, that is nailed on the cross above his head, it proclaims what? This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so all throughout the book of Matthew, that is the theme. Jesus is the king. But while the soldiers and the religious leaders continue mocking Jesus as this king of Israel, in verse 42, Matthew knows, we know, and God ultimately knows that Jesus really is what? He really is the king of the Jews. The deeper irony is, that their mockery was meant to be ironic. When they cry out, hell, king of the Jews, what they really mean is the exact opposite of that. That Jesus is not the king, but rather he is a pathetic criminal. And yet the irony here is that while the soldiers mock Jesus as a pathetic criminal, the words that they use actually tell the truth the opposite of what they mean because Jesus really is what the king that's the point of these verses here the one who is mocked as king is the king we know from the rest of scripture that Jesus is more than just king of the Jews the king of the nation of Israel he is king over all. He is Lord over all. Matthew makes this clear at the end of his book in chapter 28, verse 18, when Jesus himself declares that all authority in heaven and on earth is his. And that authority is God's authority. Jesus is the king of the universe, in other words. Jesus is king over the soldiers who mock him. Jesus is king over you and me. In fact, the Apostle Paul later would assure us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, that one day everyone will acknowledge this reality. That one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the King, that he is the Lord of all. So here's the first irony of the cross that Matthew unfolds for us here. The one who is mocked as king really is the king. The second irony, number two, is the one who is utterly powerless is powerful. The Romans had three state-sanctioned forms of execution that was available to them. But crucifixion was the most horrible and agonizing of them all. Crucifixion was viewed as despicable and extremely shameful. In fact, no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified, only foreigners. And in fact, there is really only one word to describe the one who is condemned to be crucified. No matter how horrible the crime he committed, 
he was a victim, in other words. One without hope, one who is utterly powerless. And that's exactly how Jesus appears to us here in this text. The prophet Isaiah saw it all coming more than 700 years before it happened. You go back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 53, and there in verse 7, Isaiah prophesies this. Speaking of Jesus, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. In the Roman world, the upright portion of the cross, the, the vertical beam, was typically left in the ground at the place of crucifixion. In fact, it was usually placed near a public thoroughfare or a, a public highway so that as many people as possible could witness the torment and learn to fear the powers at hand. The horizontal beam was carried by the victim out to the place of crucifixion. It was there the victim was tied or nailed to this cross beam, which was then hoisted up and suspended from the upright beam in the ground. But Jesus is now so weak, he cannot even manage to carry this chunk of wood that is placed on his shoulder to the place of his crucifixion. So the soldiers exercise their right to, to draft a bystander for the task. Matthew himself tells us in verse 32, Now as they, the soldiers, came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Victims were also crucified completely naked. The reason for that is the cross was not only meant to be an instrument of pain, but it was also meant to be an instrument of shame. So the soldiers gambled to determine who would gain possession of Jesus' clothing, Matthew tells us in verse 35. Matthew then records this interesting fact about the soldiers in verse 36. He says, of them sitting down, they kept watch over him there. This is after Jesus is now on the cross. Now why would they do that? It's not like anyone who's being crucified is a threat to come down from their cross, right? So what's the point of keeping watch over Jesus as he dies on the cross? Well, historians say that at earlier times in the history of the Roman Empire, soldiers had sometimes crucified people and then they would leave. They would walk away before they were dead. And in some known cases, friends or family members would come after the soldiers walked away and would take the victim off the cross and he would survive. And so by this stage of Roman history, it was now imperial policy to post soldiers at a crucifixion until the death had taken place. They had to make sure that the victim is dead before they could leave. This means as the soldiers kept watch over Jesus, he has no hope, none whatsoever, of rescue. Now comes the mockery. As Jesus hangs in shame and in pain on that wretched cross. Matthew tells us in verses 39 and 40, look at it. And those who pass by. So now this is, these people are part of the crowds. They blasphemed him. Wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now, why would they mock Jesus with these particular words? 
Earlier in Jesus' trial before the high priest, the religious leaders were still scrambling to find a suitable witness or witnesses who could destroy Jesus, false testimony against him. And in Matthew 26, 61, we are told that two witnesses finally came forward. You know what they charged Jesus of? You know what their testimony was of Jesus? According to verse 61 there, they said, this fellow, speaking of Jesus, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, now that Jesus is hanging on a cross, some of the people use those very words of the two witnesses to mock Jesus as powerless. Now, it is true. Jesus had talked about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. And yet, here Jesus hangs utterly powerless on a Roman cross. And so the sting of mockery kind of turns on this bitter contrast between Jesus' claim to power and his current powerlessness on the cross. Once again, the mockers think, though, that they are indulging in great irony. Jesus claims so much power, but look at him now on the cross. They cry out, save yourself, which, of course, they utter sarcastically since they are convinced Jesus is helpless and cannot do a thing to save himself. Oh, but the apostles know. We now know. And God ultimately knows that Jesus' demonstration of power is displayed precisely in the weakness of the cross. Or looking back, we know what Jesus meant when he said in John 2:19 destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. We know what he meant now. But according to the Apostle John, Jesus' opponents didn't have a clue what he meant when he talked about that. In fact, at the time when Jesus said that, even his own disciples didn't have a clue what Jesus was referring to. But after Jesus was raised from the dead, John says the disciples, oh, the light bulb went off, and they're like, oh, now we know. Now we remember his words, and now they know he was talking about his body, not the physical temple in Jerusalem. The point is, under the terms of the Old Covenant, you go through the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant there, the temple, the physical structure of the temple building was the great meeting place between a holy God and sinful people. The temple was the place of sacrifice. It was the place of atonement for our sins. But now this side of the cross, where Jesus died for our sins, Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. You see, it's in Jesus' death and his resurrection that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God. Thus, he becomes the temple. He becomes the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. In other words, Jesus bridged the gap between God and us. 
And here's the irony of it all that Matthew is drawing out for us. The mockers actually think they are witty as they mock Jesus and laugh at his utter weakness after he claimed to destroy the temple and raise it in three days. But the deeper underlying irony here is that it's, in, that it's precisely by staying on the cross in utter powerlessness that Jesus establishes himself as the temple. And he comes to the resurrection then in the fullness of power. You see, the only way Jesus will save himself and save his people is what? By hanging on that wretched cross in utter powerlessness. And so in a twist of irony, the words the mockers use to hurl insults at him and condescending sneers actually describe what is bringing about the salvation of the Lord. So the one who is mocked as utterly powerless, make no mistake about it, is powerful. So powerful that he rose from the grave three days later. The third irony of the cross is the one who can't save himself saves others. The mockery continues. In fact, you'll notice that this whole chapter is filled with mockery of Jesus on the cross. Mockery and ridicule, scorn, if you will. Notice what it says in verse 41. Likewise, the chief priest also, these are the Jewish religious leaders, mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Now what is meant by the phrase to save? Ask anyone today, ask your coworkers, ask a friend, fellow students, your neighbor, what to save means, and you will probably get several different responses to that question. Someone who is worried about his retirement may s simply say, well, save is what you better do with your money if you don't want to work the rest of your life. Ask a soccer fan, such as Ashley and Andrew, what save means, and they may reply, well, save is what a goalie does. He stops the ball from going into the net. Ask a computer techie what save means, and he will surely tell you that you better hit save. You better save your data by backing it up frequently, or else it will be lost if your computer crashes. Well, the mockers here in verses 41 and 42 don't mean any of those things. Instead, they are saying that apparently Jesus saved many other people, but now he can't even, quote, save himself. The reality is Jesus healed the sick. Jesus cast out demons. Jesus fed the hungry miraculously. In fact, Jesus even raised the dead. And now he can't, save himself from the cross. So in their minds, the mockers' minds, surely he cannot be the Savior. So even their affirmation that Jesus saved others is uttered with irony in a way that undermines his ability to save. 
In other words, the mockers are saying that, quote, this Savior that's on the cross is a disappointment. He's a failure since he can't even save himself from a cross that he hangs on. But once again, the mockers speak better than they know. Because once again, Matthew knows, we now know, and God ultimately knows that in one sense, if Jesus is to save others, he really cannot save himself from the cross. So what is meant then by save? Well, this word first shows up in Matthew's gospel back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. When God tells Joseph in a dream, she, speaking of Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And so there, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he is giving us insight into our Savior's mission when he came here to the earth. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And so the entire gospel of Matthew must be read with this ongoing announcement in mind. And so Matthew knows, we now know, God ultimately knows that Jesus is hanging on the cross because he came to do what? To, quote, save us from our sins. Even the words Jesus spoke at the Last Supper prepares us to understand the significance of Jesus' shed blood in Matthew 26, 28, when he tells his disciples there, listen, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. To use the language of Peter, Jesus died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God. To use the language of Jesus himself, he came to give his life a ransom for many. The deeper irony is that in a way these mockers did not understand, they were speaking truth. If Jesus had saved himself, he could not have saved others. The only way Jesus could save others was precisely by not saving himself and coming down from that cross. And so in another twist of irony here, these mockers spoke the truth they themselves did not believe, did not see. The Savior who can't save himself is saving others through his death on the cross. Now, one of the reasons why these mockers were so blind to what they were seeing is because they thought in terms of merely physical restraints. When they said, oh, he can't save himself, they meant that the, the nails held Jesus there. They meant that the soldiers prevented any possibility of rescue. His powerlessness and weakness therefore guaranteed his death. You see, for these mockers, the words, he can't save himself, expressed a physical impossibility. But those of us who know who Jesus is, listen, we are fully aware that the nails in the soldiers cannot stand in the way of Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is, Jesus could not save himself, not because of any physical restraints, but because of a moral imperative. Jesus came to do what? 
He came to do the will of his Father. And he could not be deflected from it. Remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, that night before the crucifixion, he cried out to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was compelled by a divine mission from his Father to go to the cross. So it was not nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his resolution to do his Father's will. And within that framework, it was his love for sinners like you and I that Jesus could not and would not save himself from that cross. So we, now, who have been saved from our sins, listen, we rejoice in this irony. The Savior who can't save himself saves others through his death on the cross, which then leads us to our final irony. Number four, the one who cries out in despair, trust God. Still sneering, the religious leaders mockingly cry out in verse 43, he trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him, for he said, I am the Son of God. Once again, their words are meant to convey ironic sarcasm. When they said he trusted in God, what they really mean, of course, is that Jesus' trust could not have been real, it could not have been valid, for he has been abandoned by God on the cross. Otherwise, why would Jesus be hanging on the cross? Matthew says in verse 44, even the robbers who were crucified on either side of Jesus reviled him with the same mockery, with the same thing. Now, let's be honest here, because at first glance, Jesus' cry of desolation, his cry of separation seems to warrant their mocking sarcasm. After all, Matthew tells us in verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This cry of desolation, separation, is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1, in which David is uttering out an anguished cry throughout that psalm. All the while in that psalm, he is demonstrating his own trust in God Almighty. And now Jesus quotes that. And so Matthew knows, we know here, and God ultimately knows that Jesus does indeed trust in the heavenly father the deep irony here of verse 43 is that the mockers once again are speaking better than they know jesus trust in god and that means jesus cry of desolation cannot be read as evidence that he does not trust his heavenly father now notice what happened though before jesus cry of separation in verse 45 look what it says it says, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. I believe this darkness signals what is about to happen to Jesus as he bears the penalty of our sins on the cross. At that very moment when Jesus gives up his spirit, 
in verse 50. Matthew tells us in verse 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the... This is no small thing. The destruction of the curtain makes a theological statement that has huge implications for us here today. Follow with me. Track with me here on this. Up to this point, the curtain in the temple meant that only the high priest could enter into the presence of God and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, when the high priest went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, he had to carry the blood of goat or bull. Animals that were slaughtered as substitutionary atonement to avert God's wrath and to pay for the sins of the priest and the people. However, with the tearing of the temple curtain, The way into the presence of God is now open to everyone. For the shed blood of Jesus Christ has made the perfect and final payment for our sins. This means we no longer need animal sacrifices. This means we no longer need priests to act as our mediators before a holy God. Why? Because the wrath of God has been once and for all turned away from people who put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for them. And so this tearing of the temple, listen, it cries out in joyful witness to the success of Christ's work on the cross. No wonder then, according to verse 54, when the centurion, one of the Roman guards, and those with him who were standing guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this is who? This is the Son of God. So this morning, hear, hear the ironies that cry from the cross. The one who is mocked as king is king. The one who is utterly powerless is powerful. The one who can't save himself saves others. The one who cries out in despair does trust in the Heavenly Father. Yes, hear these ironies, but also respond to them. Respond in faith in Jesus Christ. These ironies are tragic, but you realize what the most tragic irony of all is? It would be to sit here this morning, hear, hear about the cross of Jesus Christ, and yet never respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Never believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as your own Savior and Lord and to die in your sins condemned to hell for all eternity. That would be the most tragic irony of all. And so I plead with you, respond. Respond to the cross of Jesus Christ by trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of eternal life. But we also, as a church family, for those of us who are Christ followers, through our faith in Jesus Christ, we also want to respond by participating in communion. The Lord's Supper is a picture of a Savior who gave his life so that we could have life, eternal life. 
And so Jesus shed blood, shed his blood, and died on the cross so that we could experience forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And so in a moment, as, as we come to the Lord's table, let me encourage you, let the bread and the juice that you will take remind you of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. As you eat the bread and you drink the juice, give thanks for Jesus bridging the gap with his death on the cross so that we now, through faith in Christ, we can be reconciled to a holy God. And also, let me encourage you to use this time as you sit in your pew there, either before receiving the bread and juice or after, man, pray. Pray for one person who needs Jesus as their Savior. Lift that person up and pray, God, use me this week as I invite them to our Easter weekend extravaganza or Easter worship service. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and take a few moments to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for your work on the cross. Lord, thank you for your determination to follow and do the will of your Father so that you could provide the salvation that comes because of it. And so, Lord, we we ask for your grace that you would open up our eyes and heart. You would help us to see our need for Jesus as our Savior and Lord, the need for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, for those of us who have already re believed and received Jesus, perhaps we are, have unconfessed sin in our hearts, that we would deal with that even now before coming to your table. And so, Lord, let this be a reminder of what we have always in you. Let it also be a reminder to focus on your mission as we come this week to Easter, that we would be motivated to invite those who need the hope of the gospel in their own lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. The music's going to play for just a few minutes, and use this time to prepare your hearts before we come and participate in communion.